your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. This evening we're leaving our study of the book of Revelation because this is our regularly scheduled time to administer the Lord's Supper. This year we've made a, a change in the frequency of our observance. We used to do this 12 times per year every month, but we changed that and now we receive the elements on a quarterly basis. And I know that that change was kind of upsetting to some people. Uh, we've done it one way for so many years, and change is not always easy and always acceptable and welcome. But we've changed this uh, so we could take a special night, so we could concentrate just the whole evening on one aspect of the Lord's Supper. And each time that we observe, we'll talk about some different things uh, as we go through this, and, and every quarter we'll, we will observe the supper and deal with a different aspect. But this made it easier for us to interrupt the Pioneer Club. We wouldn't have to interrupt every month, but we could do it once a quarter. Then we could bring in the entire church, and all of us could be present to take the supper together. This is the second observance since we made that change, and it's kind of a unique one in a way because it's been several months now since we took the Lord's Supper, and I preached part number one of this sermon way back a few months ago when we uh, observed the supper on that occasion. And uh, so this is probably the longest time between two parts of a message that we'll ever have. But tonight is part number two of the message, Dining with Jesus. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. And our text verses are in Matthew chapter 26. This should be very familiar to you because we rotated four different readings of Scripture uh, as we observe the supper on every uh, first of the month, uh, every Sunday night. And so we've read this scripture about four times every year. But if you look at this in Matthew 26, verse number 17, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, if you'll go down to verse number 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful as we come to you tonight and as we prepare for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Our hearts are reminded of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross of Calvary. We're looking back to that time, and we just thank you, Lord, for coming into the world to redeem us, to save us from our sins. And Lord, as we partake of this supper tonight, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of all that you've done for us. And Lord, may we come to you as unworthy sinners, yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and now standing worthy because of Christ and his righteousness. I ask you, Lord, that you would be with us in this time of the sermon and the observance, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
These verses are one of four accounts in the Scripture about the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Supper was observed at Passover time. And when Jesus sat down with his disciples, he was observing the Passover meal. Passover was a long-ago symbol of how that God had delivered his people from Egypt. Uh, On that night, they would take a lamb and they would slay it. And there was all kinds of symbolism that was involved in that to show how God would deliver his people. Now, at some point in the future, I'm going to deal specifically with the Passover, and we'll use that as a background for another message on the supper. But I want to remind you that when Jesus sat down with his disciples on this particular night, that it was 1,500 years since the first Passover was observed. And so at this time, in this particular place, in this particular part of the Scripture, the very thing that had been symbolized for all of those years was about to take place. This was the picture that Jesus would come, that he would shed his blood on the cross, uh, just as Israel smeared the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses, and there they were protected from the death angel, and the death angel passed over them. So the blood of Christ would be applied to the hearts of sinners as they believe in him, and Christ would save us from the penalty of our sins and deliver us from an eternity in hell. It says that God's wrath is no longer upon us. So this was a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful symbolism. Israel, when they observed the Passover, they were looking forward to the time that Christ would come. But now, in this symbolism, we're looking back to the time that Christ did come. It's just a beautiful picture of what Christ did on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. In the first message on this, I I preached a few uh, months ago, I talked about what the cross means to the sinner. And we actually moved on beyond the institution of the Lord's Supper, to what happened just a short time later in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is when Jesus left his disciples and he went to pray alone in the garden. There's a beautiful hymn that tells about that. It's called, Neath the Old Olive Trees. The words go like this, Neath the old olive trees, Neath the old olive trees, Went the Savior alone on his knees. Not thy will Not my will, thine be done, cried the Father's own Son, as he knelt neath the old olive trees. When Gary and I were in Israel last year, we got to see some of those old olive trees that were then now centuries years old. They don't date back all the way to the time of Christ, but very much like the trees that Jesus knelt beneath when he prayed this prayer. Now, I want you to look just a few verses down in Matthew 26 from those that we've just read. And I want you to notice verse number 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go yonder, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Jesus said, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And that's where we concentrated the last message, the cup. What was in that cup? And we talked about what that cup means to the sinner. 
Now, I'm not going to preach part number one of the message tonight, uh, that part one that we preached before, but I do want to remind you briefly of some of the comments that were made concerning the sinner's cup. There are three representations that we find in the cup for the sinner. First, it represents our cleansing. Secondly, it represents our communion. And then it represents our consecration. It's a cup of cleansing because the Scriptures teach that it's the blood of Christ that washes our sins away. And we looked at one particular Old Testament ceremony, which was the cleansing of lepers. Leprosy is a type of sin in order to symbolize that sin was gone or the leprosy was gone, that the priest would take two birds, he would kill one of those birds, and then he would collect the blood and sprinkle that blood on a leper, on the leper that was to be cleansed. And then he would take the living bird and he would dip the living bird in the blood of the, blood, uh, of the bird that was slain and then he would set that bird free. And that was a beautiful illustration of the death of Christ and how his blood cleanses us from our sins. And then when that living bird was set free, that symbolized that Christ would arise from the dead. And so there was a promise in that of a resurrection for all believers. And that same promise is in the Lord's Supper celebration because Paul wrote that we are to observe this supper until Jesus comes again. And when Jesus comes again, what will he do? He will raise the dead. And so there's a picture of that in, that in that cleansing of the lepers and the birds. And all of that was speaking of this time that would come and what Jesus would do. And then secondly, the cup represents communion for the sinner. There is an element of fellowship that's involved, of church fellowship. But that's not the primary meaning of the Lord's Supper. The communion is the communion that we have with Christ. And the blood of Christ is the only means by which we can commune with God. Our relationship with the Father depends upon this sacrifice that Christ made of his blood. And the only thing that God will accept for us to come into his presence is the cleansing of the blood of Christ. And so if you try to skip the blood, if you try to come in God's presence without the blood of Christ, then it's blasphemy. And that's because your sin remains. God has no fellowship with evil works of darkness. And so it's a cup of communion that we take in this supper, and it pictures that Christ brings us into fellowship with him. And so those who have not received Christ can have no part of the supper. And then thirdly, the supper represents the sinner's consecration. Blood was used to consecrate the Old Testament priest. There was another ceremony in which they took blood and they put it on the right ear, on the tip of the right ear of the priest, and they put it on the tip of his right thumb and on the tip of his right toe. Blood on the ear says that we are to obey the word of God. We're to listen to what God says. Blood on the thumb was to say that everything that we do, all of our works, are to be the works of God. And we're to do those sanctified in holiness and righteousness, what we do for God with our hands. And then blood on the big toe says that we are to walk with God. We're to walk worthy. We're to walk circumspectly. We're to walk in wisdom. The Bible says we are to walk even as Christ walked. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there is consecration to God. And that's why before we take the supper, we confess our sins so that there's no worldliness in us, no ungodliness in us as we partake of the symbol of Christ's flesh and blood. So that's what the cup means pertaining to the sinner. That's what we discussed a few months ago. But I want to move on now to another aspect of the cup. And this is what it means to the Savior. 
What was in that cup and what did it mean to the Savior? Jesus knelt on the ground in great agony and he prayed to his heavenly Father. In verse 42 of this chapter, Jesus agonized when he prayed and he said, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Now let's speak for a few minutes about what the cup meant to Christ. First of all, it represents his sorrow. Matthew 26, verse number 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch for me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, do you see the word sorrowful there? One commentator says that the literal meaning of this word is to be away from home. It conveys the meaning of the terrible loneliness that Jesus experienced. What he was about to do was a one God-man job. This is something that only Jesus could do. The disciples couldn't be with him. They could not support him. In fact, we know that when Jesus was arrested just a few minutes later a few, or a short time later, that there was no man who stood with him. Now, you contrast the way that Jesus began his ministry. At first, there were crowds that thronged him. It was difficult for Jesus to even find time to be alone because everyone was pressing around him to see the miracles that he would do. They were there to receive another morsel of bread at his hand because Jesus would feed them. The Scripture says that the, spread of, uh, the fame of Christ spread throughout the entire region. And so it was difficult for Jesus to even be alone. But here when it came to this time, this was something that Jesus must do alone. He must bear that burden alone because he's the only one who could take away the sins of the world. He's the only one who could put sin upon his back. He was the only sinless one. He was the only sacrifice that God would accept. And so there was loneliness in the task that Jesus performed, and he was sorrowful because of it. He was away from home. He wasn't among the angels. He wasn't on the throne. He was ready for the most demeaning death that a man could die. He was to be crucified on a cruel Roman cross. Now, as I think of that, I think of the blasphemy of Roman Catholicism, who says that Mary shared in the suffering of Christ. They say that Mary had a part in this, that Mary also redeems us from our sins. But friends, this was a singular task for Jesus. He had no help. He needed no help. He came into the world for this purpose, and he was in deep sorrow that could be shared by no one. And then also think about those who theorize that Jesus was reluctant to die. And the prayer that he prayed in the garden amounted to a plea that God would somehow let him out of this. That perhaps there could be another way. He could bypass the cross and he'd never have to go through the death of the cross. I don't think for a moment that's true. In eternity past, this was a plan that was laid down. It was always the intention that Christ would go to the cross. He would die there. It was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's what Scripture says. And there was never a split second when Jesus ever thought that there's something else that I'd rather do. Is there another way that's possible for me to take away sin? Jesus said, for this cause came I into the world. Now, friends, Jesus was lonely. But loneliness would not stop him. He was sorrowful because the weight of the sins of the world were upon his shoulders. But he wouldn't be deterred. Satan would have killed him in the garden if he could. But Jesus prayed for strength. 
And he prayed that he would drink that bitter cup. And then secondly, the cup represents his submission. Jesus said to the Father, Thy will be done. Now what a wonderful picture that is of Christ's love for the Father. Drinking that cup meant that he loved the Father supremely. The Gospel of John gives us the most detail of the conversations that took place between Jesus and the disciples on the night that they took the supper. And in those final hours, in the preparation for the cross, Jesus made this statement. He said, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Now there Jesus said, I am going to demonstrate to the world how much I love the Father. And he said, the Father has given me a commandment. So let's get up, let's get going, because I have an appointment with death. Now that was love. He was a person of submission. Philippians chapter 2 tells us how that Christ stepped off the throne of glory. He never gave a second thought that that position in heaven, that that throne was something that he could not give up at any cost, that he must stay there. He was willing to lower himself. He lowered himself to become a man. Then he lowered himself to become a servant. He lowered himself even further to die. And then he lowered himself to the most depths, the very depths of the deepest of depravity would seem when he lowered himself to the very bottom and dying the death worth, worth death, worst death possible. And that was the death of the cross. And he did that because it was the Father's will. He drank that cup. He accepted what the Father told him to do. And so in his birth, in his life, in his rejection, in his death, it was all planned and Jesus fulfilled all of it. In John 17, he prayed to the Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So that's our example of submission. And I want to remind you that when you take the cup tonight, you are saying, Father, I submit to your will. I submit to your will. And you ought not to even think of taking that cup to your lips unless you realize the God that you serve. If you have any reservations about the God that you serve, you don't want to take of the cup. Christ's blood is represented in the cup, and so if you hold anything back, then you're saying that Christ was not submissive, and so you ruin the picture. So I warn you, don't be guilty of that. Don't ruin the picture. Thirdly, it represents his suffering. Now tonight, we don't have time to talk about all that was involved in the crucifixion. The Romans used crucifixion because it was such a strong deterrent to crime. Anybody who observed a crucifixion had to be struck at how, struck at how cruel that it was and, and how painful that it was. Every ounce of a man's dignity was stripped from him in a Roman crucifixion. So I don't need to tell you about nails that were driven into the flesh of his hands, long spikes that were driven into his feet. I can't explain to you how it felt to be raised up on that cross and then to have it dropped into a hole with a thud and the weight of his whole body tearing against the holes that had already been made in his flesh. We can't describe that. There's so many ways that Christ suffered. They beat him before the cross. They slapped his face. They struck him with sticks. They plucked out his beard. Isaiah says that his visage was marred more than any man. Jesus' back was beaten with a cat of nine tails. And there with those, those whips, that, those threads of leather that were tipped with the splintered bones of animals. 
They struck Jesus with that and it made long furrows in his back and tore the flesh and left him deeply ripped and bleeding. So the one who was all merciful was shown no mercy. The cup in the garden contained all of that. He saw that cup, but he didn't stop. When they struck him once, twice, three times, ten times and more, Jesus didn't stop. When they pressed that crown of long thorns into his brow, Jesus did not stop. And when they hammered the nails into his hands and to his feet, he did not stop. He had the power to end all of that. He only had to speak the word. And yet the Bible says he opened not his mouth. Just like those little lambs that were taken to the Passover slaughter with their throat slit, never gave a bleeding sound, so the Son of God never opened his mouth. Now, friends, that is suffering that you could never imagine. And that's not even to speak of the suffering of humiliation because there the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, was put up there on a cross naked for men to revile and to mock him. And all of that was in that cup. And so, friend, when you take the cup tonight, you you say that I am willing to bear the reproach of Christ's cross. And do you understand that when you take the supper, it means that you're willing to be identified with him? It means that you must take the humiliation and the suffering and the ridicule of your faith in silence. And it also means that you understand that you count it all joy to suffer for Christ because he counted it all joy to suffer for you. So all that's in the cup. You have to weigh it very carefully before you drink it because it says a whole lot about what you are willing to do. And then thirdly, or fourthly rather, it represents his sin-bearing. Now many have said that of all the aspects of the cross, this is one of the very worst. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Do you know that is a staggering statement? Here is the holy, sinless one who has made sin for us. Staring into that proverbial cup was mingled the blackness, the stench, the putrefying smells and tastes of all the worst of humanity. In that cup was the gall of hell. So you could sit back and you can think about that for hours and days and weeks and years. You can think about this for the rest of your life. And you could never come to the realization or understand exactly what it was like for the holiness of God to drink the dregs of sin that were in that cup. The gap between God's holiness and man's sinfulness is so wide that eternity can never even fill it. The gap is so wide that it takes two separate worlds for God to exist and sin to exist. The world can't contain God and sin in the same universe, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. And on that cross, there were two unfathomable entities that came together, God's holiness and man's sin, and Jesus took that sin. Now, don't misunderstand me, because the Bible does not teach that Jesus became a sinner. He became sin for us. He could not become a sinner. He became sin. All the sins of believers were placed upon him. There was no sin in him, but there was sin on him because God made him a sacrifice for our sins. He was the sin offering. He was the perfect lamb 
Just like all the Old Testament lambs that were sacrificed for all of those years in order to take care of the sins of the people. So Jesus came from that picture that showed that he would be the once for all sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world forever. Now maybe you can't grasp how awful that that was. Uh, What is it like for a holy God to become sin? But let me see if I can help you a little bit this with this and help to understand just how terrible it was. Because fifthly, in this cup, there's a representation of his separation, the separation of Christ. When Christ became sin, the worst of the worst that could possibly happen happened. And that's the Heavenly Father whom he loved and he adored, the Heavenly Father with whom he had been one from all of eternity, could not stand to look on him. God had to turn his back on him because Jesus had become sin for us. When Jesus died on the cross and he atoned for sin, God turned his back on his only son. And that was the only time that the Father and Son had been truly separated. Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now he asked the question, but as God, he very well understood the answer. He was forsaken because there was that awful, disgusting sewer of sin that was all over him. And God cannot look on sin. Now, each of you here tonight, I want you to understand this, that Christ did this for you. He was forsaken for you. And so, so don't you ever think that even for a minute, that with even a split second of contemplation, that you would believe that you are somebody good, that you are somebody righteous, that you're somebody that God wants, that God desires you, that God would have you for any other reason except that your sins have been hidden in Christ on the cross. He accepts you for no other reason. Unless your sins have been removed by the blood of the cross, don't you ever think that you could step into the presence of God when God turned his, own, his back on his own son because of sin? People who think like that don't have a clue. Anybody who thinks, well, I can throw a little self-help at God... I can keep a sacrament, I can pray to Mary, I can rub the toe of a statue, I can offer money, I can do something, surely, to make myself righteous in God's eyes and God will accept me. Anybody who thinks like that is a fool of magnanimous proportions. And I don't say that unkindly. I say it because I want you to get that notion completely out of your head if you ever thought it. With Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and without him, your sin remains. And if you don't trust the cleansing blood of Christ to cleanse you from all of your sins, God will no more look on you than he would look on his own son when he was bearing our sins. Now let me warn you about this tonight. Don't you dare take the cup unless you have confessed all of your sin. This cup represents the blood that was shed. It's the sorrow, the submission, the suffering, the sin-bearing, the separation. All of that is mixed together in the cup. And you are either condemned by the blood or you are saved by it. The Apostle Paul writes about that paradox of salvation. He says in Second Corinthians, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and make manifest and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who 
is sufficient for these things. Now you can trace that all the way back to the blood that was shed on Calvary. Either the blood of Christ condemns you or his blood will save you. Rejection of the blood of Christ is the kiss of everlasting death in the fires of hell. You'll perish without it. But on the other hand, if you trust it, you receive life from the blood, everlasting life in the glories of heaven. So think long and hard about that. The cup is powerful. There's a lot for you to consider in the cup. Now finally, and this is so important, it's all important because this is really why we need to be cleansed by Christ's blood, why it is so important. And that's because it represents his satisfaction. It represents satisfaction. Whose satisfaction? Well, Christ was satisfied because of what he did. He looked at what he accomplished on the cross and he was satisfied. Isaiah says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It's just like a woman who travails in pain to deliver a child. As soon as that child is born, she forgets all about the pain. When she looks at that child and she stares into its face and she kisses that child and she holds it to her breast and she loves it, she forgets about all the pain and she's satisfied to have gone through it all. And that's exactly like Christ. The cross was worth it because through the cross, he gave new birth to his people. But I want you to look at this another way. The heavenly father is satisfied. Meaning that his just and his perfect law has been upheld. You see, God loves his son and God also loves his law. His law is perfect and God has a demand that all of his laws must be kept perfectly. Now that tells us that salvation has a forensic nature to it. That means that salvation has an aspect regarding the law. Jesus kept the laws of God perfectly. And when you trust the blood of Christ to cleanse you from your sin, at that very moment you are declared just before God. And you are accepted because of the death of Christ, because his death is the punishment for your transgression of God's law. Now what Christ did when he went to the cross was to suffer infinitely the sins and the hell that we would have had to suffer. Now, he actually suffered the fires of hell for us. And God is satisfied with Christ's death. And he's satisfied that the debt that you, the debt that you owe God and the punishment that you uh, deserve to have has been satisfied in Christ. The penalty of God's law is removed from you because it's paid by him. That's in the cup. It's a cup of his satisfaction. And further, I say to you again that it's the only thing that satisfies God. We've been studying that first part of the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings, and we use this scripture even this morning in all that we've been studying there. For I say unto you, Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And what did he mean by that? He simply means that you need righteousness that you don't have. You need righteousness that you can't get. Your best efforts, the best of the best people in the world, will die and go to hell without Jesus Christ. You need the perfect righteousness that only Christ can give. And it comes from his perfect life and his agonizing death. It's all in the cup. It's all in there. Of course, I don't mean that when you drink that little cup tonight, that that little cup of grape juice has all the power that I've talked about. Of course it doesn't. 
But what I do mean is what that cup represents has all the power that I've been talking about. It represents the blood of Christ poured out on the cross of Calvary. And so what you must do, you must trust it because that's the only thing that satisfies God. This is the Savior's cup. Now, I hope you see the importance of what I've said tonight. And we changed our observance so we could do this very thing, so that we could concentrate on some aspects, so that we could impress the importance of the Lord's Supper. That it's not just a little ritual that we do. It's not just something that takes up our time on a Sunday evening. This is an ordinance of the Lord's church. This is something that speaks about Christ's death. It's an ordinance that's been preserved since that last supper that Christ observed. And so we don't want to take it without very careful consideration. Now I'm going to ask Brother Dalton to come if he would please. And we're going to sing tonight before we uh, take the supper. And um, we're going to sing a song that's now become familiar to us, which is the power of the cross. Maybe we'll make that the anthem for Lord's Supper nights. But I want us to sing this, and as we do, deacons, if you would come and prepare for the distribution of the elements. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight in some way through the message, then I encourage you to pray as we sing. If you want, maybe you need to kneel down right where you are and ask God to forgive you of your sins. Maybe you would want to come up here, and that is all right too, if you wanted to come here and And to pray, and I don't know, maybe that would be good if we just said every member of the church ought to be down on their knees and praying and asking God to bless this observance, to bless this church because of what Jesus Christ has done. So I'd like you to stand, if you would, please, and we're going to sing the power of the cross. And think of those words as you sing and pray as you do.